If you would turn to Colossians 1, we're going to uh, finish what we started last week with regards to Colossians 1, verse 2. And Paul writes in, in Colossians, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We, we talked last week and began to look that the fact that although the believers were physically located in Colossae, spiritually they were located in Christ. And that spiritual location, the fact that they were in Christ, was to have jurisdiction and legislation over where they were and what they did where they were physically. And I thought, even this morning, I thought of a verse that uh, pictures that. Many of you served in the military. Some of you, uh, like the Guthries, for instance, have a child who is serving in the military right now. There, there's, a, there's a headquarters for each of those branches, and they have positioned soldiers all over the world with a specific mission in mind. They're, they're not in China to take in the Great Wall. They're, they're not in London to take in a good soccer match. They're not, they're not in South America to do what they do in South America. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have anything, nothing. This is all, all the, forgive me if you're from South America, taking a soccer match. They seem to be very good at soccer. Um, I've been to Brazil, but we lived on a boat for nine days and went up and down the Amazon. We didn't see a whole lot. So um, you, you, you get my, and again, forgive me, but you, you get my drift. They're not there to take in the sights and sounds. They're, they're there to do the bidding of their commanding officer. They, they've been sent there on a mission. They, they've been sent there on a purpose. They've been positioned there for a reason. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, listen to what it says. Starting in verse 3. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ. And here's the verse that just, again, came to me this morning. And I'm, I'm speaking off the cuff here, but... Here's the verse that, that was on my heart this morning as I was listening to the singing. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who listed him as a soldier. That, that's the point I was trying to make with the illustration of our military. They're, they're positioned all over the world this morning not to take in the sights and the sounds of the area where they're located. They're, they're there for a reason. They're, they're there for a purpose. Jim Hampton can tell you. You know, they're, they're not, they're not gonna, they, they can't get distracted with the affairs of everyday life. They're there on a mission. And uh, the enemy would love to distract the military with the things of everyday life so that they can attack them, so they can get them off of their mission. And in the same way, Satan would love to do that with us. The subtlety of just simply losing sight of the reason we're here. Again, not some gross immorality. It, it could, I, the C.S. Lewis, in one, of his, in one of his writings, he tells of a story of, of Satan has sent some of his his imps, if you will, or demon, I think he calls them imps, or demons to attack this individual, and they cannot get this guy 
to budge. They cannot get him to sin. And Satan's watching and they're frustrated and they come up and they say, we just can't, we can't get him to sin. And he says, well, what are you doing? What are you trying to do? And it's all these gross things. I mean, just gross, immoral things. And Satan says, hey, what you propose is just way too gross. Watch this. He walks up to the guy and he whispers something in his ear and the guy just flies off the handle. And they're amazed. He comes back and they say, what in the world did you do? We've been trying to get this guy for days and weeks. He says, I just whispered in his ear that his brother had been named the Archbishop of Canterbury. Jealousy. Sent him into a rage just like that. It, 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 it could be that Satan's, one of Satan's main ploys with the body of Christ is to just get us distracted. To just get us focused on self. To just get us focused on the things of this world and just to think that we're here to enjoy a nice life. And oh, by the way, when we die, we get to go to heaven. It's like icing on the cake. That, that's not Christianity. That, that's not the call that we've been given here as believers. No good soldier entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. Our primary existence is for the glory of God. Our primary existence is to expand the kingdom of God. If we've been, listen, if we've been just like today, today, um, the NFL, there are going to be games played all over America, even in, even in London. All of those teams individually, guess who they represent? The NFL. Spread out all over the nation. All of us, believers all over this world, are going are gonna to meet today. And they're going to go out into a world. And you know what we exist for? For God's glory. We're there to, to expand His kingdom and not our own. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3.2, Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are of earth. And I think if we're honest, starting with this guy right here, I could become more upset that the Seminoles are terrible than I am about, about sin, than I am about the mission of God. That, I'm just being honest. I can be more consumed with the things of this world, and my mind is more on whether my soccer teams win or not than whether my neighbors are saved or not. That's the challenge. No good soldier entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. You know what he cares about? He cares about his mission. He cares about why he is where he is. He cares about why he's been called there. He has a mission. And he doesn't rest until he satisfies that mission. And, and that's, the picture, that's the picture of us being in Christ. If we are in Christ... Listen, you do not, I do not have sovereignty over my life anymore. I laid that down. It's not, again, Christianity is not, well, I just tack on Christ as one of the many other things that I do. No, no, no. He, I am in Christ. He is it. And we'll see that. And the first point on your handout, again, continuing what we saw last week, is as believers, being in Christ carries implications for every aspect of our life. It's not just what we do on Sundays. 
It's just not just this little segment of our life that, well, I did my quiet time and I did, now I get to get, no, 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 no. It's not that. It's not a compartmentalized life. Christianity is not one part of who we are, not one part of what we do. It's all or nothing. And, and that's the challenge of, of sanctification and of maturity in Christ is surrendering more and more and more and more of my life to the sovereignty of my king. Again, what Paul is saying here in Colossians 1-2 is that their identity of being in Christ legislates and, and really has jurisdiction over every aspect of their life in Colossae. While they are in Colossae, what governs them is the fact that they are in Christ. Paul, Paul deals with this in, in 1 Corinthians 6 very clearly, starting in verse 12. He says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but I'll not be mastered by anything. You know, Paul is saying, look, as a Christian, we don't legislate our lives any longer on whether it's lawful. We legislate our lives on whether it's profitable for the gospel, for the king who's called us. Doesn't matter if you can. You, you, you legislate your life by the profitability with regards to the gospel. He says, all things are lawful, but I'll not be mastered by anything. It's the same thing Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's 8.13. If food, food or meat causes my brother to stumble, you know what he said? I'll never eat meat again. Why? Because the gospel was more important to him than eating meat. He legislated his life based on the gospel, not based on his freedoms. And, and Paul goes on in, in 1 Corinthians 6... These, these believers are having relationships with the temple prostitutes. And look what he says. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take away the members of Christ and make these members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one with her? For he says the two will become one. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality and every other sin. He says in verse 19, or do you not know? that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Same thing he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Why? Because believer, you're not your own. If you're truly a believer in here today, listen. When you repented of your sins and you received Jesus Christ's righteousness... You lost possession of your life and ownership of your life. You surrendered it. You gave it up. That's, that's part of the gospel. You're not your own. That's the whole point of the book of Hosea. Hosea's wife is up on, a, up on an auction block, naked in horrific sin, and, and Hosea, Hosea buys her back. He buys her back. And God is painting a picture, uh, again, and the immediate context there is Hosea. Gomer would have been a picture of Israel. Bigger than that, Gomer would, have been, Gomer would have been a picture of you and I and our sin. And God bought us, bought us. That's what the word redemption means, agorazo. It means to be, to purchase out of the slave market. We've been bought. 
And that price, again, was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. What Daniel sang about this morning, that's why the cross, again, is so precious to us, but why it's so offensive to the world. Why? Because it, it's not a testament to my worth. It's a testament to my sin. The cross is not a testament to how worthy and how awesome you and I are. Oh, God would spend so much. No, no, no. It's a testimony to the grossness of our sin and to the awesomeness of the holiness of God that in order to buy his creation back, he had to crucify his son. He had to crucify his son. Not just write you a certificate of divorce from your sin or not just sweep it under the rug. No, he had to crucify his son. And the, the biblical reality is that he bought us. He purchased us. That's salvation. Again, we see it in Colossians. We, if we ever get there, he's rescued us, verse 13, from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's bought us. We exist to do his bidding. And again, this is not a, when you understand the gospel, when we understand the depth of our sin, when we understand what God did, serving him is not a drudgery as you see it on your handout. It's done with privilege and joy. It's a joy and a privilege to serve and glorify a king who would buy me, who would purchase me, that I could have eternal life and have the forgiveness of my sin. And, and what we need, what we need as believers is to mature, to fully understand the gospel. To understand that, not just a surface level understanding of the fact that it happened, but a depth of understanding of all that it involves. Because, because the implications of this gospel are far reaching. You see it on handout. To be in Christ brings personal fulfillment to our lives here on earth. And again, before you jump ahead of me, let me explain what that means. That doesn't mean that God exists to do your bidding. It doesn't mean that the things of this earth are going to be where you find your fulfillment. Jesus, the reality is what he's done is he's brought us to himself who is the fulfillment. He is the fulfillment. John 6, 35, he says, I'm the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Who come, whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. In John 4, the woman of the well, he says, I give you living water and you'll never thirst again. It's not in the things of this world. It's in a person. John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you would have life and have it in abundance. Where? In me. In me, Christ says. In John 15, verse 11, he talks about abiding and, and, and all these things. And he says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We as believers cannot separate our joy from obedience to, to his commands, from how we serve as a soldier. Our joy is found in magnifying and, and glorifying our commanding officer. That's where fulfillment is found. And, and listen, if we're, if we're trying to be duplicitous, if we're trying to serve two masters, if we're trying to essentially, like a soldier, sneak out of the barracks and go, go enjoy a little bit of the world and then sneak back in and hope nobody finds us, there's no joy in that. The reality is there's concern on whether we're going to be caught. 
And, and that's really a picture of what it looks like for Christians to try to love the world and be okay, to be okay, because we all battle with this, to be okay loving the world and yet thinking we can love Christ at the same time. It would be like a, a, a son or a daughter sneaking out of their, parent, their home at night, going and have a good time, sneaking back in before their parents get up and hoping their parents don't find out. What are the chances those kids are going to enjoy sitting at the breakfast table the next morning with their parents? They're not going to enjoy it. You know what they're going to be thinking the whole time? I wonder if they know. I wonder if they know. You think they know? Joy for a believer is found in obedience. It's found in seeking to do the bidding of our commanding officer. It's not found in how much of the world can I enjoy. And, how and again, that's a temptation for all of us. But we're killing our joy. But we're also killing the joy of our father. You think a father or a mother is... is is pleased when their kids are doing that? No. Neither is God pleased when his kids are, are okay. I'm not saying, look, we all fight loving the world, but are we okay with it? Are we okay with our sin? Are we okay with living duplicitous lives? Of, of loving the world and the things of God? Are we okay with that? Or are we fighting it? Because the mark of a believer, listen, I sin, I hate my sin. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I, 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 I hate that I get angry at an FSU team that's terrible. I, I hate that I get so, I, I want so badly for these girls to, and boys to win. But part of that is because in a sinful way, it's fun. I like winning more than losing. And I take a lot of identity out of that. It's dumb. I get it. But again... That's what God's doing in my life. That's one of the many areas that he's getting. Look, and again, that competitive nature is probably tied to pride. And it's probably tied to a lot of things that I want to control something and think that I, I can't control that. Why should I put the pressure on those girls and those boys to, find, to, to bring me my identity? My identity needs to be in Christ alone. Not, not in my sports achievements, not even in pastoring this church. I can find a lot of identity in, in even pastoring this church. And whether it's, if it's going well, I'm awesome. And when it's going bad, I'm a village idiot. And that's not where I want to live. It's my job to be faithful here. And again, I'm not, I'm not the best. I'm the best you got right now, but I'm not the best. <laughs> I'm the only one you got right now, for better or worse. But, but what I'm saying is I, I can find my fulfillment in what I do instead of who I am in Christ. And that's the challenge. That's a battle I face every single day of making this thing way too personal. Uh, of even my study, even my studies can be surrounding preaching sermons to you Instead of God preaching to me. And, and honestly, these last two weeks, last week and this week, were birthed out of what God has taught me. You're just getting the overflow of the last two weeks. I've probably thought, unfortunately, more about what it means to be in Christ, moment by moment, thinking, I am in Christ, I am in Christ, and letting that have jurisdiction over every part of my life. I, I can honestly tell you, I had not caught that verse in all my studies of Colossians. 
you are in Christ at Colossae. So, so I may be the only ones that grow from that, but it's helping me. But, but this, there's joy in that. I have come that you would have joy and have it to the fullest, but it's in Christ. B, as believers, to be in Christ brings unity amongst fellow believers and animosity with the world. That's what we saw in 2 Timothy. No good soldier entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. That we saw in 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. For anyone who loves the world and the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And you see on your handout, the expression in Christ means to be related not only to Christ personally, but also to the kingdom and the family that he came to build. And listen, number, the, and, and, and honestly, this is where we have, behind the scenes, there's some, some currents there, even in, this, even in this body that we're battling with, and where they boil down to is, is spiritual warfare, and even beyond that, what it boils down to is unity. The number one way that Satan wants to disrupt a church is through unity. Causing disunity, getting us fighting against each other, getting us fighting against self, so that, again, we lose, we lose the, the import of the mission. In, in Ephesians 4, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, listen, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What, what are you trying to do in your home with your kids? You're trying to raise them to maturity. You're trying to bring about maturity where there's immaturity. You know what Christ is trying to do in me and what he's trying to do in your life? He, spiritually, he's bringing about maturity where there is immaturity. In all of us. Maturity. You, you can go back to 1 Corinthians 3. This has always been the case. Paul says, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, and you were not able to receive it. Even now you're not able. And here's how Paul says, here's how he diagnosed that they were spiritually mature. For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? You go into any nursery, guess what you're going to find? Fighting. Why? Because they're immature. You're not going to find, you're going to find fighting over foolish things. Immaturity. And what the gospel has done, he, the gospel, even in this room today, many of us would not know each other, would have no relationship with each other, were it not for the gospel. Agreed? We would not know each other. I, I probably would not know Esther and Akeen were it not for the gospel. I, I might not know many of you if were it not for the gospel. But, but in that gospel, listen to me, no matter what our differences are, we're one in the gospel. That's why it's the great hum humiliator of all pride. Why? Because I didn't come to it on my own and they didn't come to it on their own. And yet in Christ, we're one. And, and all throughout the gospel, Galatians 3, 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free man nor any of those things. They're one in Christ. One. We're one. We have a lot of work to do here. There's always stuff to do. There's always, including this guy right here, but what we can't allow is for disunity. 
We, that's gossip and all the other stuff. We can't allow that. Why? Because Satan just sits back and laughs. Why? Because we're not focused on spreading the gospel. We're focused on one another and fighting with one another. That's disunity. And in 1 John 3, he really hits on all of these really in one verse. 1 John 3, verse 13. Listen to what he says. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Talking about animosity with the world and unity amongst brothers. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brethren. Right there in one verse, you have unity amongst the brethren's brethren, animosity with the world. And the more we're unified as a body and the more we mature in Christ, guess what happens? The world hates us even more. Why? Because we don't care about, we care about the gospel. We care about the gospel. And the gospel is offensive. No matter what you, what you want to do, listen, the gospel will always be offensive. To tell somebody that they're in sin, that if they do not repent of their sin, trust in Christ's righteousness, they're going to hell, that is offensive. I, nothing I can do about that. And, and if we're going to be a church and individuals who really, really care about the things of the Lord, the world's going to hate us. They're going to hate us at times. And sometimes the mark of a healthy church is the fact that we're having to deal with stuff and is the fact that the world hates you. It could be the reason when the world loves you as a church, it could be that maybe, maybe you've watered down the gospel. Maybe you're not confronting sin. Maybe you're not doing the things that God has called you to do. Therefore, the world loves you. Why? Because you're just going along with them. There ought to be unity here and animosity, not trying to pick a fight. But listen, the gospel will be offensive. And animosity with the world. And see, again, what, again, implications for our lives. These are implications of being in Christ at, at odds with the world, but in unity with one another. But see, being in Christ brings about total transformation. You're a new creation, total transformation of passions, desires, allegiances. In, in Ephesians 4, he says, verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all gentleness and humility and patience, showing toler with one, tolerance for one another in love. You're, it's a whole new walk. He says it again in verse 17, I affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. It's a whole new life. That's Christianity. You're a whole new creation. You, you, you live in an entirely new kingdom with a whole new set of principles, a whole new set of truths, a whole new way of life, a, a whole new thing of wisdom. And what Paul is saying here is that our being spiritually located in Christ, you see on your handout, overflows into our mission here in a physical world. We're not only interested in ourselves, but we're interested in one another. We're not only interested in ourselves, we're interested in, in other individuals who were lost as we were lost. That's why he says to be salt. And if salt loses its saltiness, guess what? It's useless. And how does salt lose its saltiness? How do Christians lose their saltiness? By becoming worldly. I mean, last week in the middle school, boys, we focused on one word, distinct. Distinct. Be, be, be distinct. That, that's Christianity. 
to be distinct for the glory of God. And, and again, our spiritual existence in being in Christ, you see it there, guides our physical existence. There, there was a sociologist named Robert Bala, and he was at California Berkeley. And listen to this. He did a study on the impact that just a few really, really sold out individuals can have on their society. Listen to what he says. This was his conclusion. We should not underestimate the significance of the small group of people who have a new vision of a just and gentle world. In Japan, a very small minority of Protestant Christians introduced ethics into politics and had an impact beyond all proportion to their numbers. They were central in the beginnings of the women's movement, labor unions, and virtually every reform movement. Then he added, The quality of a culture may be changed when 2% of its people have a new vision. Listen to me. Open up the book of Acts and you see that illustrated. A small minority group of people who have a clear vision, who have, who have unified hearts, they change the world forever through the power of the Holy Spirit. All understanding what it meant to be in Christ. And a minority. And again, sharing the gospel, living for God's kingdom, evangelizing, not set out for a few crazy Christians or a few radical Christians. That's what every single believer in Jesus Christ has been called to do. Go, therefore, and make disciples. It's not, not relegated for just a few crazy people, a few people that have the gift. No, 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 you have the command. It's not about a gift. Some of us may be better than others, but we have a command. Like, love your neighbor. Well, I don't have that gift, but you have that command. I'm just not very good at it. Well, well, get better at it. I don't know what to tell you. Start trying. It's not about a gift. And, and again, our mission, our lives and our mission flow from knowing Christ, who is the prize and the goal of our labors. During the storm, I, we, we went and lived with my mother-in-law because she had power, and so we invaded her camp and uh um she lives in a retirement community and it's quiet and then here comes the bashams and so we were we were i was walking the dogs one morning and there was a gentleman and we struck up a conversation and i was sharing the gospel with him and 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 he said well no no i'm and he named a denomination he said i'm and he he named the denomination and i said what does that mean what does that just what does that mean i mean you're a what does that mean and so he went on and it was, it was, this guy had grown up in the church, had grown up in this denomination, it was all works. He must have said he was a religious guy at least a half a dozen times, especially when he found out that I was a pastor. And, and I said, well, can I, can I, where do you find your authority for that? I don't know. So well, can I, can I, would you agree that the Bible is an authority? Oh yeah, yeah, I'm religious, I'm I, well, can I, can I share with you what the, what the Bible says? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This man must have been 70-something years old. Had no idea about the gospel. Had no idea about the righteousness of Christ. Had no, I mean, I'm walking him through these things, and his whole, his whole salvation was based on works, works, works. And here I am introducing him to a salvation that's based on faith and based on Christ and his work. For about 20 minutes, and, and, and I was grateful. I didn't orchestrate this, but my son, 
had walked outside and was watching. And, and, I, and I hope that that's what he sees in his father. I, I would hope more than anything, he would see a love for the Lord. Not, not a crazy guy who yells during the soccer games and yells. No, no, a love for the Lord more than anything else. That, that we as dads and moms would model that. They need to see that in us. And I was grateful that he witnessed it. But here's the point. This man was 70 plus years old and he had missed a relationship with Christ for, religi- for, for really religiosity. For doing a bunch of stuff. There was no relationship. And I, and I asked him, you know, I, I brought it to a conclusion. He said, you know what, I, I really, really, really need to think about this. And he told me he'd visit, and, and that's up to him. But why did I do that? I did that out of a relationship with Christ, and I'm not perfect at that. But, but in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, We beg you as ambassadors for Christ that you repent. We're ambassadors. Our, our mission, our objective is to Live a life that shows Christ as our treasure and that we would, through that, beg people. Not, like, not that God needs it because we love them. He, doesn't, he is not lacking because one person or another doesn't repent or not. We want their sins to be forgiven and they can only be forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. we got to want that. We, we've got to be so settled in that in our own hearts that we can't help but tell people we're ambassadors. And, and our concern as believers is not with Christianity or, or with a culture called Western civilization. Our concern was, it was with glorifying a person whose name is Jesus Christ. I, I didn't share with him that in hopes to grow this church or do, no, 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 because of the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. That's what our lives have to be about. We've been called, we've been forgiven for that purpose. To bring glory to our commanding officer. And when God set out to restore a sinful creation back to himself, to make a way for unrighteous people to be declared righteous, because that's what God is, is he's righteous. And the reason we don't go to heaven is because our sin has made us unrighteous. Listen. He sent his son to dwell with his people. He didn't send a bunch of rules. He didn't send, no, no, he dwelled with them. He dwelled with them. A relationship, Emmanuel, God with us. That's our hope. And, and not only that, he, he, again, in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians 1.13. I give you the Spirit as a pledge. I'm coming back. A down payment. He's our seal. He's our guarantee. John 14, 16, he's our, he's our comforter. He's our helper. He's our guide. He's our convictor. He's all those things of sin, of convictor of sin. Why? To help us. He dwells in us. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And in all the postures we looked at, all, even this man I met, his religiosity, here's what he missed. He missed God being the prize. In all his religiosity, all his obedience, all his doing, he missed the person of Jesus Christ. He missed the relationship. And it would be like me going home and spending the rest of my life with Karen, 
doing stuff and never knowing who Karen is. Never enjoying Karen. And there's probably a lot of marriages that endure. And yet there's little intimacy between the husband and the wife. That, that's Christianity. John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life that you may know. That's not a knowledge that's just based on facts. That is literally the word there in other contexts is used for the intimacy between a husband and a wife. That you would know, know, know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. That you'd know him. It's a relationship. And in real Christianity, God ceases to be someone or something that we employ just to get what we want. He becomes what we want. He becomes our treasure. And we won't settle for anything less of the things of the world. And that's what Paul sets out to do in Colossians. To give them such an accurate understanding of who God is and who Christ is. That the things of this world, would, would they would not settle for those things. And as I thought about that, how does a lack of understanding that this... This illustration, and I hope it fits, came to my mind. When I was, um, I grew up with a dad who loved cars. We had a, a 1963 Chevy Nova 2 that we took to car shows, and, and uh, I remember we would win some, and my dad would let me go up there and, and get the trophy or the plaque or whatever. And I mean, it was, it was immense to, again, that, that might be where my competitive spirit was brewed, I don't know. But cars were a big deal. And I, I always loved Mustangs. I always loved a Ford Mustang. And, and my dad and I had talked about restoring one and let, giving that to me. And he came home one day and he said, Hey, Chris, I found a Mustang for you that, that we might get. I said, Really? I said, Tell me about it. And he says, Well, it's a little different. It's not one you're used to. It's, it's actually a Mustang Fastback. Well, I didn't know what that meant. And here's what I did. In my lack of knowledge, you know what I did? I told my dad, I'm not interested. Because I didn't know what a Mustang Fastback looked like. And I passed. I passed on something great because I, I just didn't take the time to get to know what a Mustang Fastback was. And I thought I knew, I thought I knew Mustangs more than I really knew Mustangs. And there was something really great offered to me, and you know what I did? I passed on it. And I tell you that why, because words, I, I settled for less. And, and words, words and ideas and images, listen... They only make sense when you have an accurate frame of reference for them. And I thought, again, I thought I knew what a Mustang was, and I didn't. And my fear is that, that that's true when, when we think about God. My fear is that we've settled for substitutes, that we've settled for an immature understanding of who God is, a less than complete, maybe even flawed understanding of who God is. And because of that, we don't desire Him the way that he's worthy of being desired. The reality is, if I really knew Mustangs and my dad came home and offered that to me, we would have gotten in the car. I still, to this day, look back and think, why 
did I do that? We should have gotten in the car and gone and bought it right then. If I would have really understood what a Mustang was. If we would really, and Paul sets out, and, and I hope to do the book of Colossians justice, Paul sets out to give us such an amazing view of who God is that we would not walk away and be satisfied with anything less. And you see it there on your handout. What Paul sets out to do in Colossians is give us an enlarged view of God that we would not be satisfied with less. That we would orient all of our lives around the gospel. Why? Because we've gotten a picture of him. So how do we do that? And that's two on your handout. How do we reorient our lives, as we said last week, reorient our lives? As believers, we're called to pursue and love God as our treasure above all else. And the rest of our lives overflow from seeing God as our treasure. We need an accurate understanding. Whether it's John 1... Verse 14 and 18, no one has seen God at any time, but he was in his bosom. He has explained him. Whether it's Hebrews 1, in the old, God spoke through many portions and many prophets in many ways. But today, he has spoken through Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 3, Jesus Christ is the exact representation. You want to know what God's like? Study Jesus. Study Jesus. He's come to explain him. He's come to reveal him. And how do you do that? This right here. You can't replace it. It's this right here. Saturating yourself right here. That's the relationship. Through the Word. Through prayer. Through fellowship. But primarily through the Word. Psalm 119. How can a young, in verse 9 maybe. How can a young man keep his way pure? Delighting in the Word. Hiding the Word in his heart. It's the Word. 2 Timothy 3.16. We've... we've Quoted it many times. Why? Why is the word given? So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1.3, seeing that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. You know where that goes back to? The word. It goes back to the word. And if we're going to reorient our lives, you see it on a handout, and assume a life with God posture, a life with God. God must cease to be how we acquire our treasure, and rather He must become our treasure. He must become our treasure. He's not a way to get something else. And in Matthew ver, ver, chapter 13, listen to what it says. Starting about verse uh, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had. And you know what he did? He bought that pearl. Animosity with the world. Intimacy with God. God, God ha he, he is the prize. He's to be our treasure. And this only comes through the gospel and through a deep understanding. Not just, well, I, I, I just simply had my, had, my sin, and then had my sins forgiven and I just go, no, no, that's not Christianity. It's dwelling 
It's intimacy with God. It's knowing God. This is eternal life that you would know a relationship. It's not just something that we tack on to the end of our lives. It's not just another app that we put on our phones and it's there when we need it. It is the app. It's our life. And we, we cannot divorce having our sin forgiven, being reconciled to God, being declared righteous from treasuring God as a natural response in Christ to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. God is the prize of salvation, being reconciled to God. Not just forgiven and gaining entrance into heaven. God is the prize that we may know, know, Paul, and we saw it in Philippians 3, I've forsaken all things. Why? To know Christ. That I may know Christ, not only the, the, the power of His resurrection, but the fellowship of His sufferings, that I would know Christ. Brethren, even when we suffer, here's the beauty. Why can we rejoice always in suffering? Because we know Christ. We gain an intimacy with Christ, even in suffering. 2 Corinthians 4.16, this momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory. Looking past what is seen to what is unseen. Again, we long for God, even in suffering. And God created us that He would dwell in us and He would get glory through us, and that we would be His representation. If you go to Genesis 1, all the way to Revelation 21.3, from the first book to the last, you see a picture of this, God dwelling with His people. Relationship with His people. And that's the whole purpose of the gospel, to God making a way for Him to rightly dwell with His people. To restore intimacy, to dwell Sin and death separated us from the holy God, and God has torn down that wall. He's made a way for sinners to be declared righteous. Why? Not so that they can go and live and fall in love with the world, so that they can fall in love and dwell in intimacy in His presence. Reconciliation. He's reconciled in the gospel sinners to Himself. Not freeing them up to love the world and have their sins forgiven. No, He's made a way back to Himself in Christ. If that's you today, believer, I, I, I pray that, that, you, that we would all, by the grace of God, allow that thought to permeate our hearts and minds in Christ. If you're, not, if you're here and you're not a believer, I, I, I pray that you would, you would contemplate what you've heard today. John 14, 6 says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You're going to have to come by faith. It's not about having all your answer, questions answered. It's not about having everything proved. It's faith. It's faith. And in faith, in faith, I believe that the death, burial, and resurrection is the only way that a sinner can be reconciled and declared righteous to a holy God, thus being saved. And if that's you, believer, He ought to be our treasure.